Amen. If you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we'll be looking at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 today. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, this is quite a statement, particularly when you look at all of the Old Testament saints, such as Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Elijah. Jesus is affirming that there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, why would Jesus say such a thing about John the Baptist? And I think that in these few verses, we get a small snapshot of John's greatness. And unfortunately, what we see in John is the kind of greatness that is rare in the world. And it is also rare, unfortunately, among Christians and even more, unfortunately, rare among ministers. And this is not a sermon to say, try your hardest to become more like John. But I think that John's character does highlight to us what a person should look like after being sanctified and molded by the Spirit of God. I think by examining John's character, even this small little portion, it may expose some hidden sins in our own lives and sins that we need to confess and repent of. And by repenting, God can conform us a little more into the image of his son. So the first thing I want us to see in John is John's refusal to envy. And you see this in beginning in 22 and 23. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, where, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, here, if you just read this straightforward, it sounds like Jesus is baptizing, but John, in the Gospel of John, in John 4, 2, he tells us that Jesus wasn't baptizing people, but his disciples were baptizing people. 
So Jesus' disciples were baptizing people in a certain region, and John the Baptist was still baptizing people. And there was an overlap of, of ministry. Verse 24 tells us that John had not yet been put into prison. That is coming soon, where Herod will arrest John. But both John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples were baptizing, presumably with the baptism of repentance. This is before the Christian baptism. That, wasn't, that wouldn't be instated till later. So Jesus was baptizing for repentance, and John the Baptist was baptizing for repentance. And the fact that both groups were bad, baptizing at the same time with the same baptism created some tension between the two groups, particularly with disciples of John the Baptist. And we can see this in verse 25 and 26. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, in the ESV, many of you have the English Standard Version, they use the word discussion. It's kind of like a discussion when you and your spouse are in a discussion. You know what that is? That's a mild way to put this particular word. In essence, they were fighting. The Greek word is zetesis. And it doesn't just mean discussion. It means to express forceful differences of opinion and without necessarily having a presumed goal of seeking a solution. They were just in a brawl. So we read here that it was a Jew, a Jew. So that probably tells us that he was some kind of a leader, maybe a Pharisee from the Sanhedrin, but it was a Jew. And they were having a dispute, a disagreement. And it appears that their disagreement was over what it says purification, but quite literally it would be a discussion over baptism, the meaning of baptism, the authority of baptism, who has the authority to baptize. But whatever the dispute was about, the fact that Jesus and his disciples, the fact that they were baptizing was a part of that discussion. And there were, was a emphasis in the fact that Jesus' group appeared to be gaining a bigger following than John the Baptist. When John the Baptist first came out into the wilderness, people came from all over to hear John the Baptist, to, to see him. And many people were baptized. And then when Jesus came on the scene, people began to follow Jesus and, and his disciples. And so everyone was being led to Christ. Now, everyone, you see them say everyone. It wasn't everyone. The, the, the scripture tells us here that, they, that John was still baptizing people. They just weren't baptizing as many as Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And it's... It's pretty telling that John's disciples didn't even use Jesus' name, did they? They said, you know, that one who was across with you, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, 
John, you have shot yourself in the foot. I mean, you bore witness to him, and now everybody's following him. Uh, and, and then they said again, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. That's some hyperbole there. That's, everyone's going to him. And with that, I think we can see clearly what is going on inside their, their minds and their hearts. Um, we understand, I think we can pick up on this, that their hearts were full of envy. They were full of envy because the crowds were going with Jesus. They were turning away from John the Baptist and the disciples. They were used to having all of the focus on them and all the people focusing on And all of a sudden, the crowds are dispersing and they're following somebody else. Now, the New Testament says a lot about envy. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29, as Paul gives the list of what the lost people are like, those who willfully suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, and he goes on. But envy is a part of that. If you really want to know what's going on in our culture right now with critical race theory and all of those things, it is all driven by envy. Marxism as a philosophy is driven by envy, and that is the very source of our cultural tension today. It's envy. Galatians 5.26 says, Let us not become conceited, provoke one another, envying one another. And then 1 Peter 2.1 2, says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. As you read the New Testament, you find that if there is quarrelings and divisions, even within the church, the core of that is envy. And you see that in the spirit of John's disciples. They saw the crowd going somewhere else. All the limelight was shifting away from them. And so they begin to envy Jesus and his group of disciples. So you can be sure that wherever there is disunity and division, there is envy. And then unfortunately, the spirit of envy has plagued the church from the very beginning. This is not anything new. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 15, Paul says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. What Paul is saying here is that there's divisions among you, and a lot of it is a, a party spirit. 
meaning some follow this person, some follow that person, some follow that person. It creates division, and it creates, it's created because of envy. But not only did the early church struggle with envy and division, uh, the modern church struggles with it too. And I hate to, to say this, being a minister myself, some of the worst culprits are ministers. For years, I would attend pastor's conference and state meetings. But years ago, I, I stopped going regularly. Sometimes I would go, but I, I stopped going like I used to because it was almost embarrassing to watch the ministers jockeying for position and size each other up according to the perceived successes of their ministries, which usually was, was based upon budgets, buildings, and baptisms, you know? And the bigger the building and the bigger the budget and the more baptisms, the more voice you had and more, the more likely you would be invited on the platform to preach to the other pastors who weren't so fortunate to have large churches. And many of the ministers there in the crowd were constantly looking to climb up the ladder to a, a bigger church so that they could be recognized on the platform. And I think the last straw for me was when I watched a, a minister, an acquaintance of mine that was sitting next to us and there was preaching that was beginning to start and he reaches down in his briefcase and pulls out a stack of resumes and walks out in the hall saying that he's going to find a bigger church. And uh, it must have worked because he still serves at a very large church today and he is invited on the platforms and, and uh, very, very well known. Um, and when you're invited to sit up on the platform, you get to preach to the pastors of smaller churches that are presumably looking for bigger churches so that they can have the limelight as well. That's unfortunate, isn't it? That should not be among ministers. Even in Chickasha, there seems to be a spirit of competition here among pastors rather than a spirit of cooperation, knowing that we are on the same team, we have the same goals, and yet envy, I think, is behind all of that. Envy of other people's position and churches and all of those things. And so ministers are not immune. In fact, sometimes they are the biggest culprits of this. Kent Hughes wrote, our competitive society is structured to compel us to measure our achievements against those of others. And then he added, very few things give the enemy of Christ an occasion for blasphemy like a jealous party spirit among Christians. So in this passage, among John's disciples, you can see that party spirit, the spirit of jealousy, the spirit of envy. And at times, Jesus' disciples also displayed that spirit, right? When they argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, and a couple of them even had their mother to go uh, try to convince Jesus to allow them to sit on his left and on his right. And so none of us are immune from this. 
Again, John's disciple told John that everyone's going over to see Jesus. Everyone's going there. You're losing your whole crowd. You're losing everybody. They're all going to Jesus. However, John's reaction to his disciples gives us a real insight to why John the Baptist is considered great, why Jesus said there's no one greater born among women. Look, look how John reacted to this in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What do you think about that, man? Everything that you have, every ability, every talent, all your possessions, your house, your cars, everything that you have has been given to you from heaven. Do we deserve any of it? No. Someone may say, well, I get up and go to work every day. But the question becomes, who gave you the body and the health to be able to go to work? Who gave you the mind, a sound mind, to be able to work and, and, and make money and wealth? The things that you have are all gifts from God. And so this was John's answer to his disciples who were full of envy and jealousy. And John said, hey, look, anything that anybody has, it's given to them from God. God has given every single one of us a measure of talent and ability. And the truth of the matter is God is not equal in that. Sometimes he gives some people a large portion of talent and ability. Sometimes he gives other people a large portion of possessions. He doesn't distribute his talents and abilities and possessions. He doesn't distribute it equally. But it all comes from God. And, it, and the point here is that if everything that we have comes from God, then we must learn to be thankful to God for what he has given us and be content with what he's given us. The heart of envy is discontent. The heart of envy is looking at your neighbor and seeing what they have and wishing that you had it, right? And so we need to recognize that what God has given us is he's given us by his grace. We don't deserve any of it, but we need to learn to be content with what God has given us. And we must learn to be content with what God has given to others. We shouldn't envy those who have a greater place or provision or talent. We should merely seek to be faithful in using what God has given to each one of us. That's what John understood. He didn't have a cause to envy. Everything that I have has been given to me. Why should I envy this? Why should I envy Jesus? And Everything that I have has been given from the Lord. And I think this is the true antidote to the problem of envy and jealousy and strife among Christians. If God has given another a greater measure of talent, we should not be envious, but we should be glad for them and glad for the kingdom of God. And if we have greater ability than others, it's not a cause for boasting or looking down at other people. 
It's because all of our gifts and abilities have come from God to be used in his service. And in the same way, if we see someone that is successful, we should not glorify that person, but we should give glory to God. And even if we have received a modest gift with modest success, we should still glorify God because all of what he, we have has come from him. This brings up the idea of ambition. Is ambition wrong? People think that ambition is wrong, but not all ambition is bad. There is a big difference between the ambition for the kingdom of God and selfish ambition. We should have a zeal to use our gifts and talents and abilities to the best of our ability. In fact, Jesus even tells a parable about giving a talent and and, and the person that was giving the, the five talents went and doubled that talent. He used it and he increased it. But Jesus had only condemning words for the one that was given one talent and then buried it, did not use it. And so we should have a zeal to use whatever gifts and abilities and talents, even if it's a lot or if it's a little, we should have a zeal to use whatever God has given us for his glory and for his kingdom. But it is another thing entirely to operate under selfish ambition. This is the way the world operates. They are operating under selfish ambition to, 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 to have a drive to seek their own personal glory, to have the world to recognize them and give them accolades, to get others to sing their praises. That is not the spirit of a Christian. Our focus is to do everything for the glory of God so the world and people will sing the praises of God, not our own. So if like John, we always keep in mind that everything that we have comes from God, it will not only keep us from selfish ambition, it will keep us from the sin of envy. And we know we're getting there spiritually. When we see someone with a greater talent or ability than our own, and we can give glory to God for it, and not look at them and envy them for what they have. A good example of this was F.B. Meyer. You probably have never heard of Meyer. Meyer was a minister in England in the, in the 1800s, later mid to late 1800s. Um, and he struggled with envy. I mean, after all, God called Meyer to be a pastor in London at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. And on Sundays, Meyer would walk out of his church and watch carriage after carriage go by full of people going to hear the great Charles Spurgeon. And he was eaten up with envy. Later on in his life, G. Campbell Morgan, another great expositor, also eclipsed Meyer's success. And when Myers and Morgan spoke at a conference, the crowds would swell to hear the great G. Campbell Morgan. And then when Myers would get up to speak, the crowds would disperse. But finally, Myers was convicted over his bitter spirit. And he began to pray for Morgan. 
he knew that the Holy Spirit would not allow him to envy a man that he was earnestly praying for. I, th I think it's a good clue for all of us. If there's someone in your life that, that you envy, pray for them. You can't have the spirit of envy and pray for them at the same time. And through his prayer for Morgan, Meyer's heart was completely changed. God enabled him to rejoice in Morgan's preaching. And people would hear him say, have you heard Campbell Morgan preach? Did you hear that message this morning? My God is upon that man. And in response to Meyer's prayer, Morgan's church grew so much that the people began to flock into Meyer's church as well. So the Lord changed his heart there. So here in our text, unlike many ministers, we see that John the Baptist did not struggle with envy. Verse 28, look what he says. He says, you yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have seen, been seen, sent before him. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so John knew that God had given him a particular task. God had gifted him, I guess, to really like locusts and honey, I don't know, and to put up with the camel's hair coat. But God had gifted him, and he gave him a particular task. And he was not to build his own following. That was not his goal, but to prepare the way for the Christ. And it didn't bother John the least when the crowds left him to go follow Christ. That's what he was sent for, is to prepare the way and point people to Christ. And so John knew his place. What mattered to John that he, is that he would faithfully execute the task that God had given him. And I think that should be our mindset as well. Whatever gift, whatever ability, whatever talent God has given you, all of our gifts and talents should be used for God's glory in whatever capacity that is. Now the next thing I want to see in verse 29 is John's attitude here of, of joy. John wasn't discouraged when the crowds became smaller. In fact, he, he, he tells us a, a story here, an analogy that give him, gave him great joy. Look in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, what is John referring to? We, we have weddings here and we have a best man. And this is similar to the best man, but the friend of the bridegroom had a lot more responsibilities than just the best man. Um, the bridegroom would be a liaison between the bride and the groom. He would arrange the wedding. He would send out the invitations. He would preside over the wedding feast. He brought the bridegroom, uh, the bride and the bridegroom together. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber until he heard the bridegroom's voice. And then he would go away rejoicing, knowing that his job was complete. So he rejoiced in performing his service in bringing the bride and the bridegroom together. So 
John tells his disciples that not only was he not envious, but it gave him great joy to see the crowds following Jesus. John Calvin wrote of this. He said, he has obtained the fulfillment of all his desires and has nothing further to wish when he sees Christ reigning and men listening to him as he deserves. So it gave him great joy. So even though the disciples were envious, John was full of joy that people were following after Christ. We need to also remember that John's use of the analogy of the bride and bridegroom, that's not accidental. We know that the bride and bridegroom is something that Paul and the rest of the scripture and even the book of Revelation expands on between Christ and the church. The book of Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul tells us in Ephesians that marriage points to a greater reality of Christ and the church. And when we come week by week in a, in a service like this, we're not just coming to hear. What, what we're doing when we come here is that we are renewing our covenant valve to the Lord. It, it seems kind of ceremonial, doesn't it, as we recite what we believe, as we sing to the Lord, as we confess our sins. Every week we are renewing our marriage vows, our covenant vows. And each week we get a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. We get a little sample of that, just a small sample. But one day when Christ returns, he will have a great supper that we are invited to. Just like every week, we're invited to his table to look forward to that time. And the fact of the matter is, we are all unfaithful to the Lord. We, we're all full of sin. We are covered with blemishes of our failures. But in spite of that, he loves us. And he gives us opportunities to confess our sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So week by week, hopefully we're walking in confession every day, but week by week we're reminded that we need to come with confession of our sin so that he will cleanse us. And when we confess... He will restore us and renew us, and we are to leave here again having been cleansed and purified and ready to go out into the world, not to build our own kingdom and to seek our own glory, but to build the kingdom of God and seek the glory of Christ. So John's true pleasure was not in the crowds. Unfortunately, many ministers are easily satisfied with just how many people come. That's not where his pleasure was. His true joy came when he saw the bridegroom appear, when he was pointing others to the Messiah. His joy was complete, not because his job was over, but because Jesus was there. Because in this story, John was not only the bridegroom's friend, he was also part of the bride. John himself needed his sins forgiven. And he had great joy to see his Savior appear, who would die on the cross 
for his sins as well. And so in this, John's joy was complete. And there's that one thing that a person eaten up with envy can experience, can they? They can't experience joy. You can't have joy and envy at the same time. And our joy cannot be found in the praises of men. That's pretty fleeting. Our joy is found in the privilege of serving Christ. John found great joy in pointing others to Christ. I want you to to realize how much of a privilege it is that we have been given to be ambassadors for Christ. To do something in all eternity we'll never be able to do again, and that is tell people who don't know about Christ, tell them about him. And help them to understand the gospel, how Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. That gospel, what a privilege it is that Christ entrusts us to be ambassadors for him and tell the world the good news about what he has done for them. And yet many of us take that for granted, don't we? We, we? we think that that's just for others to do. But in reality, he has given each one of us that task. And I think that sometimes we are joyless because we don't open our mouths to share Christ with the world. That, that gave John a great joy. And I think there is great joy in Christ's servants who are willing uh, to, to share the good news with others. So we should count it an honor to share Christ with people. We should count it an honor to be able to explain the gospel to them, to find Christ as their Savior and Lord. I think this is what gave John great joy, to point people to the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now we see in verse 30, John's humble goal. Leon Morris wrote that what John says next are some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of a mortal man. In verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. There was no envy in John's heart. He knew his task and he knew that Christ needed to be glorified. And in order for that to happen, John needed to take a back seat. He needed to to slowly disappear. And so he saw that his ministry must give way to Christ's ministry. Now, the disciples naturally didn't want their teacher to take a back seat to anybody. You know, they really wanted to promote John. They were envious for his sake. But John knew his place and his purpose. And he was happy to decrease so that Christ would increase. And in the same way, if we are to be useful to Christ, we've got to resolve to make little of ourselves and much of Christ. And this kind of humility is not natural to the fallen human heart. Uh, In reality, all of us want to be made much of. We want the accolades. We want the recognition. We want to be celebrated. We want to be exalted. And uh, 
But really that's nothing but pride. And pride is at the very root of our sin. I mean, was it not the temptation, you'll sh you shall be like God? That you're going to be equal with God, maybe even better than God? And that was the temptation of Adam and Eve. When William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, was on his deathbed, he turned to his friend and said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. When John Calvin died, he had a wonderful reputation. People came all around to hear him. And, but when he died, he instructed that he did not want anybody to know where he was buried so that no one would come and venerate his grave. His desire that Christ alone would be magnified and glorified. And these men of God learned the same lesson that John the Baptist had learned. He must increase and they must decrease. So following Christ for a lifetime brought these men, men of God, John the Baptist, true humility. A.W. Pink says humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. Um, you can try to be humble and be proud of it, evidently. But if I am truly occupied, he says, with that one who is meek and lowly in heart, I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word. Then I shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. So in reality, humility is not something that we can strive for. It is merely a byproduct of following Christ. A lifetime of following Christ. And that's why the mark of true greatness in the kingdom of God is humility. We see this with other men of God in Scripture. Numbers 12.3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Other translations say that he was very humble. That word meekness can mean, can mean humble or great with great humility. So Moses was with great humility, and God used him mightily. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said of himself, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that phrase there, lowly of heart, means humble in spirit. Here's the Son of God, who is to be glorified and honored, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet the Son of God himself was humble, lowly at heart. So Moses was humble. John the Baptist was humble. Jesus was humble. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's a, that's a command. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why humility is one of the marks of greatness in the kingdom of God. Not something to be strived for so that you can, people can see how humble you are. 
But humility is that mark of the great men of God, including Jesus, and it was the mark of John the Baptist. Again, humility is is a key attribute of God's service. A.W. Tozer wrote, True humility is a healthy thing. The humble man accepts the truth about himself. He believes that in his fallen nature dwells no good thing. He acknowledges that apart from God, he is nothing, has nothing, knows nothing, can do nothing. But this knowledge does not discourage him, for he knows also that in Christ he is somebody. He knows that he is dearer to God than the apple of his eye and that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That is, he can do all that lies within the will of God for him to do. When this belief becomes so much a part of a man that it operates as a kind of unconscious reflex, the emphasis of his life shifts from self to Christ, where it should have been in the first place. And he is thus set free to serve his generation by the will of God without that thousand hindrance, but without thousands of hindrance he knew before. So what should we take away from all of this? What should we take away from the life of John the Baptist? So we've examined John the Baptist's lack of envy, his joy in serving Christ, his humility, his love for Christ and his desire to see others follow Christ. And all of these characteristics should be a part of the Christian life. We should all desire these attributes. And we have to be okay with the fact there's always someone smarter. There's always someone better. There's always someone greater. There's always someone more talented. It's, we have to be okay with that. We have to, to glorify God in that. And even those with the greatest talents will live long enough to see their talents decline and watch others take over. And we have to be okay with that too. A few years ago I heard about Warren Wiersbe. He uh, was an author and a speaker, very popular. He created a, a series of commentaries that many pastors use called the B-series. And uh, very, very popular. He was always at conferences, always invited. But uh, over time, Wearsby got older. He lost his wife. And I was talking to a guy that knew him personally. And he said, it's kind of sad that Wearsby, you know, he's older now, but his phone never rings. Nobody calls him to speak anymore. Nobody calls him just to talk to him anymore. He's just alone. And his life became eclipsed with other speakers and authors, younger guys, you know, ones that had more energy and more zeal. And so over time, Wearsby was forgotten. We have to be okay with that. There's coming a time when I'm not going to be able to stand up and preach. 30 years from now, I don't know. At 85, I don't know. But I have to be okay with that, to pass it on, to rejoice and be glad at the talents and abilities of others. That we need to realize that we are given just a small segment of time, 
but we are a part of a long chain over hundreds and thousands of years. You and I are here because of the people, the generations before us, they were faithful to the Lord and they passed on their faith to us. We're in this building. A lot of the people who, who gave money to build this building are long dead. And yet here we are sitting in a building that they contributed to worshiping God the very thing I'm sure they would hope for. But we have to be okay with that. It's God's program, it's not ours. And we're just here for a short time. And while we're here, we might as well give it our all for the glory of God and not try to build our own kingdom or work for the praises of men because that is so fleeting. They may praise you one, one week, the next week they won't. One week you're a hero, the next week you're a zero. It's so fleeting, isn't it? But we shouldn't worry about that. It's God's program, it's not ours. And it doesn't matter how talented we are. We just need to recognize that everything that we have been given has been given to us by God. So we can rejoice in our own talents and we can rejoice in the talents of others and be grateful to God for his gifts. And we should take great pleasure that God has called us to serve him, to be a part of that great chain, to make little of ourselves, and to make much of Christ. And just like John the Baptist, the fact that Christ is being followed and glorified should be enough for us. It should be our very goal. It should be our purpose. I mentioned the preaching of Charles Spurgeon earlier. You would think with all the fame and accolades that Spurgeon received, actually he was hated as well. Uh, Spurgeon, because of a doctrinal stance, was kicked out of the Baptist Association in London. I think he was, this vote was a thousand to seven <laughs> to kick him out, or a little less than that. So he was not without controversy, and there are a lot of people that didn't like him. But for the most part, even looking back on him, he was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. And you would think that with that amount of talent that Spurgeon would have become arrogant and prideful. Uh, prideful over his ability. I, I even read about him in amaze, you know, amazed at his ability and the things that he accomplished and the things that, that he did. A story is told about a group of American Christians who, who, who were invited to visit London for a week and they were asked by their friends at home in America to go visit the two greatest preachers there in, in London and bring them back a report, what they thought about both of their preaching. And so one Sunday they went to hear Joseph Parker, a man famed for his eloquence and his oratory skills. And after his preaching, they departed from the service, and one of them ex exclaimed, I, do, I declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever there was. So the group longed to go back and hear Parker again, but they knew that their friends would ask them about Spurgeon, so they kind of reluctantly went and said, okay, we'll go this evening and go hear Charles Spurgeon preach. So they went that night and attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 
And as they departed, they said this, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. I think that there can be no greater compliment given to a preacher. That all the talents and abilities given by God are overshadowed by the glory of the Christ that he preaches. And that's what our desire should be. Not that the world sees our talent and sings our praises, but that the world sees Christ in us and hears about Christ through our words and gives him all the glory. That's what gave John the Baptist great joy. And that's what should give us great joy too. And this is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God.